Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that reality and thank you for uh, the truth that we can sit under your word knowing that it is indeed true that we can rest there and we can receive. And certainly, Lord, with discerning hearts, but at the same time, Lord, opening up our hearts to your spirit uh, that you might guide and you might direct. And, and so, Lord, as always, we pray where we need to be challenged, where we've uh, been lulled, perhaps, uh, by the ways of this world, we pray that you would um, speak in and that we, would be, that we would respond ready to receive and act. Lord, where we need to be comforted, as many of us do, we come here on a Sunday and we're just so glad to be with the saints because it's been a long week and it's been a tiresome week. And so to be able to gather in a place with others that are interested and committed in you and your ways, Lord, is just good and healthy for us. And so, Lord, those of us that need that comfort this morning especially, I pray that we would find it here this morning. Lord, speak to your word. I pray for those of us that the word is familiar. And we've heard it many times, and we've heard the Lord's voice even many times. And we've got grown so accustomed to hearing his voice that it doesn't impact us perhaps in a way that it used to. I pray this morning, Lord, that your word would indeed come alive. And you would speak to every heart that is here, drawing us to yourself in a greater way. And so we ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh, thank you. Could you turn these uh, lights on up here? There's a couple on the back that on each side that need to get hit. Gene, would you grab that? Or somebody got it. All right. Friends, uh, as I said, we are in chapter 19. We left off after doing 16 at 17. So let me read that verse to you. It says this, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. He being God there, not the poor guy, God there will repay the person for his deed. And so I'll just say this, if you are looking for an investment where you are guaranteed a return on that investment, then here is the investment you should make. Be generous to the poor. Again, the verse says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Solomon says that, that the Lord will repay him for his deed. That which is given to the poor or done for the poor, God will place it into his accounting book as if it was done for him. And what you should take notice of, that word repay there that is used there, it's a term which means to repay with interest. And so he's not just going to return, you loaned him five bucks, he'll repay you five bucks. He's going to repay it with interest. That's the specific word that Solomon chose to use in this particular instance there. And so here we are, we are people. Now we live in a world that often neglects the impoverished. And it does so because it perceives that those individuals have little to offer that we in the world or the world truly wants. The Lord instructs us, the world may say that, the Lord instructs us to take notice of such and to take action with such. And so when your money or your goods or your time or your efforts are given with loving concern to the poor, Solomon tells us that the Lord takes notice of that and he will repay that. He promises to repay those deeds, those actions with interest if they're so moved in such a way. And so what's the exhortation? Quite simply, that we would be such a people. That we would be a people that goes counterculture to what the world might say and we would be a people that shows love to those that are impoverished in one way or another, whether we feel we can benefit from them or not. Straightforward makes sense. And so if your heart is hardened in that particular area, allow the Lord to soften your heart in that particular area. May I say this? It is not the government's responsibility. It is our responsibility as individuals. 
That's my little Fox News thing to throw at you there. Uh, but the reality is there wouldn't be a need for the government to intervene if we, were to inter- we, we would intervene. And so I'll leave it at that. Continuing on to verse 18, it says, Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Jeez. <laughs> All right, discipline your son, but don't kill him, is the general message that you have here, though you may be inclined to from time to time. Now, I'll say this. There's a lot of ideas for us to consider here. Also, different translations of the Bible, English translations of the Bible, have translated this similarly, but enough different that it kind of changes the idea that might be communicated. So I'll draw your attention to both of those. I'll try to make the connections as to how one went there and the other went a different direction, and then we'll see what the Lord has for us. Here's how the King James translates that. I just read to the ESV. The King James says this, chasten thy son while there is hope and let not thy soul spare for his crying. So again, that's a little bit different than the ESV is there. But in both instances, there's, there's an admonition. And the admonition is that a mom or a dad is to be diligent in the disciplining. King James uses the word chastening. But that parents are to be diligent in disciplining their son and, of course, their daughter as well. Now, the English Standard Version seems to be an encouragement to the exasperated parent. Any parents here ever been exasperated in raising their kids? A few of you, uh, probably not with Dell though, with the younger children, I'm sure. Yeah, but from time to time, you just, you just want to give up. You say, you know what, I'm just going to try to keep you alive until, uh, you know, you're 18. But I, I'm not going to bother anymore. I'm not going to correct anymore. I'm not going to get involved anymore because it's just too tiring. And indeed, it is very tiring to do so. And so the ESV seems to be an encouragement. No, no, discipline your son, for there is hope. He's going to get it eventually. It might take time. You might think he's never going to get it, but there is hope he'll get it. And then it says, do not set your heart on putting him to death. And so, again, the idea there being steady, consistent, loving efforts of a parent will pay off. There is hope. That's ESV's idea of it. Now, the King James, it seems to be emphasizing disciplining and doing so early. So the emphasis doesn't seem so much on be encouraged, don't give up, you can do it. The emphasis there is, no, no, you need to start early and you need to continue to do so through the years of your child's life so that that chastening, that discipline might have its effect prior to the bad habits or the sinful habits setting in. That seems to be the direction that the King James is going. Again, if you don't deal with children when they're young, then it will be hopeless later on is King James' idea. Now, of course, we always know there is hope in Christ. Many of us, we grew up in families and our parents, you know, as it says in Hebrews, they did the best that they could, that sort of thing. But in reality, we weren't poured into. We didn't have the discipline that perhaps we may be trying to instill in our kids based on our understanding of the Scripture. And yet the Lord still intervened in our lives and brought us to himself. That's my scenario. That's my story, where the Lord still entered in. And so we know that there is always hope. But why put a person, if you will, so to speak, in a hole that they have to climb, that they have to get themselves out of that particular hole. Start when they're young, before the habits form, creating them a love, if you will, or a respect at least for authority and for self-discipline and moving in the right direction. Now, the uncomfortable aspect of it is that second part of the verse that says, don't kill him, in so many words, don't put him to death. Now, the reason why we can be comfortable, and actually about four verses in our study today different translations go a significantly different direction. And some might look at that and say, well, then how can I believe the Bible at all? 
And, and so the reason why we are comfortable with the fact that two verses, the same verse in two different translations seems to be saying the same thing is because in general, we know I should say, those ideas are true in other places in Scripture. So it's not introducing us an idea that's like, what? That's not found in the other parts of the Bible. They are all found in other parts of the Bible. And so that's why we can be comfortable with either one of these directions that these, uh, the King James goes, the ESV goes, the RSV goes, and so on and so forth. Also, that being said, if you go back and you look at the original language, you can understand how they go in this direction. And you look at the meaning of the words, and I don't know Hebrew in that sense of it or, or Greek in that sense of it for the New Testament, but if you take a concordance, a Strong's or something like that, it gives you the word, it gives you how it's used, the hundred of other times that it's in there, and you, be, you can begin to do some investigating yourself and digging yourself. And as you do so, you say, okay, I see how they went over there. I see how they went over there. And then it, it kind of makes sense to you. Does that make sense, what I'm suggesting? Some of you are like, no, no, but just nod your head yes so we can move on. Here's the point. When children are young and impressionable, impressionable, that's the time that they should be instructed. Now remember, the root of the word discipline is disciple, teach, taught. That is when they should be taught. That is when you should teach them is when they are young and impressionable. And oftentimes as parents, and we live in a somewhat permissive society with children, oftentimes as parents, we shy away from that. There's even philosophies of, of raising kids that says kids need to find their own way. Kids just need to discover that for themselves. Whatever they feel inclined to do, I'm going to let them do. That's a huge mistake because their inclination is going to be towards sin and towards selfishness. Even if it's cleaned up sin, selfishness is still sin. And so their inclination is going to be to go a direction that is apart from the Lord. And to leave a child to his or herself is honestly to demonstrate a cruel indifference to the soul of the one that you have been entrusted with as a parent. And so it is your responsibility, it is your duty, it is a mark of your care as a mom or a dad to discipline your children when they are young and teachable, and to do so as soon as the rebellious nature they inherited from their great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, as soon as that begins to show itself, that is when they lovingly need to be disciplined, corrected, guided, and molded, really, because that corrupt disposition, if that's left unchecked, that child's going to grow up and harden uh, into having various sinful habits that are really going to be a problem for himself and for our society. So God has ordered such things in society that either a mom or dad instill these things into their son or daughter, discipline, order, etc., or the necessary authorities will need to do so. And so mom and dad can do that with consistent, loving, sometimes painful instruction when their child is young. If they don't, or if they won't, then the state's going to have to step in. And that's almost always painful, and the instruction that comes into that child's life is almost always more costly for that one. And in some severe cases, certainly, it could even lead to being put to death. And so the reality is, parents, if you love your kid, raise your kid, teach your kid, discipline your kid. We're reading these verses there. Notice the second part of the verse. It says, do not set your heart on putting him to death. Again, if you leave your child to his or herself and the authorities have to step in, that could be the end result. Not in every state in our nation, but certainly so that could be the end result where a person has to experience the, the most serious of consequences that the state could deal out. 
lack of discipline. Now the King James here, notice what it says, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. That's very different from don't put him to death, right? Now there's a reason why they choose to go there. One thing that is curious to me, the King James Version, which I think is a solid translation, the King James Version translates this word. It's used over 800 times in the Bible. Almost always it's translated as die or dead or slay or kill. Of those 800 times it's used in the Bible, only once is it translated in the King James as crying. Are we good? Only once is it used in the, in the scriptures as crying. So that's curious to me. 800 times in the Bible, almost always as a form of dead or dying or slaying or, or something like that. And in the King James, it chose to go into the direction of crying. And it seems that the King James is going this way, that it's saying in so many words, do not stop disciplining your son or daughter because of their crying and allow them to progress on a path that will lead to their destruction. It seems that perhaps is where the King James is going. And you've been there. You know that. You, you look at your little kid. Your little kid is crying there, and you're like, oh, but she's so cute. Or, oh, he's so cute. My daughter worked the system, I think, in some regards. I don't even think she knew she was working the system. But just with her little cute face and her eyes and her ears and her little nose, you know, whatever, it's very hard to continue to discipline, you know, your cute little daughter. The boys, they were, they were a piece of cake, all right, because they were just they were awesome. Anyway. You see that and you, you say, you know what, that's okay, little girl. That's okay, little boy. Well, that's a mistake to do. And obviously, if the baby's crying, the child, let's say, is crying there. And for you to stop, ultimately, that's not for their good. I'll throw this out there. His point then, it's better that your son or daughter should cry now under their loving parent's rod than under the authority of the local police department or court system. Right? All right, let's move on here. So parents don't lose hope. Verse 19, a man of great wrath will pay the penalty, for if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. And we've seen a number of times Solomon addressing the tendency of the fool to give themselves to their wrath, give themselves to their anger, and thus demonstrate indeed that they are a fool. Earlier in this chapter, last week, we read this in verse 11. It says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook and offense. And so in the very chapter, he addresses the same, same idea. He's addressed it many times in the book already. And so clearly, the repetition of the, the warning reveals to us that it's an area we need to guard ourselves against, some of us more so perhaps than others. William Arnaud, he said this, often, he said, why do we repeat ourselves in the Bible? Why, you know, Solomon said the same thing five, six, seven different times. And Arnaud, he said this, he said, tell me the specific rebukes that most thickly dot the pages of the Bible, and I will tell you the specific sins that most easily beset mankind. If any vice is often reproved in the Word of God, you may be assured that it springs prolific in the life of man. And I agree with William Arnaud. It's repeated many times because it's a problem for almost all of us, and some of us more so than others perhaps. And so again, then, we look at this idea of allowing ourselves to respond to that which angers us with unconstrained abandon. To say it another way, John Corson said, a man who loses his temper will continually find himself in hot water. You'll get yourself into trouble more often than not. And again, I said it last week, there are certain occasions where circumstances should make us angry. 
There are certain things that we should observe, we should see, and say, that is not right. And somebody should step up, and somebody should do something about it. But truth be told, more often than not, that which angers us isn't always as righteous as we would like everyone else to believe, or that we ourselves would like to believe. And even if your anger is indeed righteous, we see here how important it is that we handle that anger properly. Now, earlier I quoted Arnaud. This is what he said on this verse. He said, The exercise of anger, although not necessarily sinful, is for us exceedingly difficult and dangerous. I thought this picture he paints next is really helpful. He said, It is like fire in the hands of children. Although it is possible for them in certain cases to handle it safely and usefully, we know that point of, in, fact, or in point of fact, they more frequently do harm with it than good. And the idea is we could have anger, righteous anger, but more often than not, point of fact, is we don't handle our anger properly. The best thing that we can do with our anger is to defer our anger. And it's when we respond in anger, in circumstances, that we oftentimes get ourselves into trouble. Because our nature presses for vengeance. I want to get, equal, I want to, to get even with the individual, I want to do to them what they did to me. I want to seek immediate vindication. And in doing so, it leads to things oftentimes that we will regret later on. Things we said, things we did, ways that we responded, and so on. And so it's the wise individual that even though they might get heated up in anger, they're careful not to do anything until they cool down again. And oftentimes it's time that requires that to take place. That's the way to avoid getting yourself, as Corson said, into hot water. By allowing yourself time to cool down, that allows you to think a bit more clearly through your response. Amen? Right? And so we pull back, we think through our response, we formulate a much safer and more righteous course of action, and then we move forward as the Lord might direct. So that's the first part of it. A man of great wrath will pay uh, the penalty. The, And then it goes on and it says, if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. Now, that is that not only will the hot-headed individual, man or woman, suffer punishment for giving way to their wrath, but the hot-headed individual should suffer punishment for giving way to their wrath. You see that there in the second portion of the verse? And oftentimes, what do we want to do? We want to intervene. We want to step in and say, oh, man, I can't believe it. You know, they're such a a sweet person. They just acted this way this one time. That's not true. It's not this way this one time. And so we want to intervene. We want to kind of minimize the consequences, help the person avoid the consequences of their action. But notice what Solomon says. He says that that would be a mistake to do. Because you intervene, you minimize those consequences, you prevent those consequences altogether, the person's only going to get into trouble again at some point in time. They're going, to end back, they're going to end up back in the very same place. Because if a person is given to sin, sometimes the most loving thing that you can do is let the individual experience the consequences of their sin. Did you hear that? That's hard to do, isn't it? Particularly if it's your kid. And you love your kid so much and, and so on. And we have people here that we love dearly. And they've strayed and they're involved in some things. And they want us to intervene. And we're like, no, you've got to experience the consequences of it. 
because it's an experience in the consequences that perhaps your words of instruction that aren't having the effect, the sting of the spanking, so to speak, will have the effect. And so we pull back, and that's what Solomon is essentially access, uh, suggesting we do. Don't deliver the person. Allow them to experience the consequences of their action, and hopefully that will wake them up. Make sense? Not easy, though, right? All right, verse 20. It says, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. I mentioned earlier about this idea of investing. He who gives to the poor will surely be repaid with interest. Well, here we have another idea of investing. Here's Solomon. He says this, listen to advice and instruction now so that you might gain and possess wisdom then. So you listen to it now so that you might gain it then. And so this idea of the acquisition of wisdom, and of course, as we looked at last week, the continued application of wisdom, that is a long-term investment in your future. I imagine many of us were familiar with the idea of investing and the value of compound interest in savings. That's something you've at least heard of or you, you, you know the dictionary definition of those words, you can figure out what it means. We have a simple chart here, and, and I feel like I'm a little bit out of my league here, already, but I'm going to go for it. But we have this simple chart. It's designed to demonstrate the value of beginning to contribute as early as possible to your retirement account. Don't we have it? We don't have it. Okay, I'm going to use hand signals here, okay? The general idea would have been this. Wow, look at that chart. That's an awesome chart. Alrighty, but the idea is this: if you start contributing, say to your retirement account when you're 20 years old, and you put $5,000 a year from 20 to 35, 15, 16 years of your early adult life, there, you begin to contribute $5,000 a year for that period of time. By the end of that time, with typical interest rates and so on, I can't even see. You would have this much money. Are you ready? You would have 2,000. No. You would have $2,087,130, a year from the age of 20 to 35. $2,087,130. Not bad to retire on, is it? Now, if you wait, because I'm 20 years old, I still got this to pay for, and I wanted to take that trip to there, and you know, I'll get to the uh, contributing a little bit later on. So let's just say you wait until you're 30. You wait 10 years, and then you begin to do $5,000 a year over that particular point in time. If you wait until you're 30, instead of having basically 2100000 you will have 930000 Now, that doesn't sound, well, that's fine, 930, that's good. I'll take $930,000. You've given up a million dollars. It's much better with the chart. It really is. <laughs> I think you would be much more impressed in that particular case there. Anyway, the point is this. It's called compound interest. And some people even call it a miracle. It's the miracle of compound interest that just a little bit steadily over a long period of time, long-term investments makes a big difference here. And so Solomon then, his instructions here in the verse is the same thing that your investment advisor was probably trying to tell you. I had a principal when I first, I got my first job. He said, Greg, uh, Mr. Schuster, he said, Greg, he said, you're going to get a paycheck in two weeks. That'll be the biggest paycheck you've ever received because this was my first full-time job. He said, if I could give you any advice, not as your principal, but as an older friend, he said, start investing money now. Start investing a little bit of money now because it'll make a difference. And that's what Solomon is getting to. What Solomon is saying is listen to sound advice 
receive instruction now so that all of that wisdom and advice can continue to bear dividends long into the future. Prepare yourself now for then. Now, many of us, here we are, we're sitting in this situation here. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. I can give you a general idea. Within the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, every one of us here is going to have a dear loved one die. Every one of us. The time to prepare for the loss of that close loved one is not when it happens. It's now. You prepare yourself now so that you will be ready for then. Parents, or, or excuse me, people, humans, if you don't have children, you're married, let's say, but you don't have children yet, the time to prepare for raising your children is not when you have them. You'll be so tired, you won't be able to think. All right, the time to prepare for that is now. If you're in college, the time for prepare, to prepare for what your life's going to look like when you have that first job and you're starting to get a house and things like that, the time to prepare to that is while you're in college. I'm, I'm excited. I'm not even speaking clearly. I'm slurring my words or whatever here. But that's the point. You prepare now for then. And I think this most, uh, I think you could see the biggest difference. Just like if you start saving when you're 20 as opposed to when you're 30, I think you can see the biggest impact of this long-term investment if you're presently a young person. Because if presently you are 18, 17, 20 years old, you're a young person, and you begin to put these words of wisdom into practice now, you will see the biggest impact on your future than the rest of us that are already a little bit closer to your future, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm almost 50 years old. Already for you, that's like forever away. That's 35 years for some of you here, but I'm almost there. And so little changes I make in my life now aren't going to seemingly have as big an impact as things that you impl- uh, input into your life when you're 15, 16, 18 years old. Make sense? And so this idea of long-term investment. Now, some of you say, well, I'm 50, 60, Two, there you go. I won't, I won't throw any older. 62, I got you. And some say, well, you know, old dog, new tricks, can't teach him. Why bother? I'm already this far along here. If you have any plans of staying here on the earth, five years, 10 years, 15 years, if the Lord wills, then you might as well start investing. Because you invest now, it's still going to pay a significant dividend. The idea is invest into your future. Dave Ramsey, many of you are familiar with him. He is the Financial Peace University guy. And he primarily talks about our finances and things like that. But I think his little phrase is applicable even in our spiritual lives here. And this idea of investing into wisdom. He says this, and you know it if you took his course. He says, live like no one else so that you can live like no one else then. Live like no one else now so that you can live like no one else then. Invest now into these things, and you'll see the benefit over time. And it's good, isn't it? Those of us that have been seeking to do that for many, many years, to see that uh, bearing fruit in our lives, it's a really good thing. Verse 21 continues. It says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Back in chapter 16, we saw a similar verse, and I pointed out, an old Yiddish phrase. Yiddish is kind of like, uh, it's kind of like Hebrewish, Jewishish, and more Jewish culture-ish of a language. And in a Yiddish phrase, it says, man plans, but God laughs. And, and you probably remember that uh, from when I shared it. And again, the idea is that as human beings, we make all kinds of plans, but ultimately, as we've said, it's the Lord's purposes that will come to pass. 
So we make all sorts of plans, but it's his purposes that will come to, come to pass. And so the person of wisdom brings themselves into league then with his purposes. You're familiar perhaps with the New Testament in the book of James. James addresses this idea of boasting about tomorrow. Familiar passage, he says, come now you who say today or tomorrow will go in to such and such a town. We'll spend a year there. We'll trade. We'll make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life, James says? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Doesn't help my self-esteem much, but it's true. All right? I am a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, James says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this thing or that thing. Now, often, Christians interpret this as to the importance of us adding a disclaimer to our conversation. So if we're talking about our plans, make sure you add, if the Lord wills, and then you're good. I don't really think that's what James is getting at. I think what James is getting at here is this, not just to throw mention of the Lord's will at the end of our planning, but to bring the Lord into our planning process. And so rather than throwing in and at the end, he's there in the beginning. Because again, man plans, but God laughs. And it's his purposes that will stand. And so as we're thinking about what my future is going to be and what direction I feel the Lord might be leading me, that has to become now not just my thoughts, but a matter of prayer. Lord, where would you have me to go? Lord, what are you trying to accomplish in my life and through my life? How are you directing me? Not at the end of things that you throw it in as sort of a a quick statement. And so certainly it would be wise that we bring our plans into alignment with his purposes in the beginning and not try to bend them in the end. Make sense? Verse 22 says, what is desired in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. Fifth time now Solomon has mentioned the poor in this chapter alone. Here, I don't think his point so much addresses the idea of how you treat a person that is impoverished or what have you here. I I think what Solomon is trying to get at is what truly endears a person to another. Now, we know oftentimes their popularity endears us to them, and so we're drawn to that. Their fame endears us to them. Their wealth endears us to them. But Solomon here essentially says what should truly endear a person. And he says what should truly endear a person, what is desired in an individual, is really not their money, and it's not their fame, and it's not their popularity or anything that we think they can offer us. It's their steadfast love. That's what draws us to a person. And so a, pers- a poor man who sincerely wishes you well but can promise you nothing because he has nothing to be kind with is better than a rich liar who makes you believe he'll do all sorts of things for you but when it comes time for him to do those things for you, doesn't do them at all. So who's better, the rich liar or the poor sincere person? The answer is the poor sincere person because the point is this, it's not about wealth. And it's not about money, but it's about character and disposition. The quality that endears us to people is honesty and integrity and kindness. And their outward appearance and the things we perceive that they can offer to us, that may initially attract our attention. But as time goes on, the thing that will keep our attention is the sincerity of their care and concern for us. That's what will keep us connected with them. And obviously the converse, be that sort of person. 
You want to be that sort of person in people's lives. Chapter 18, we learned this, that the person who would have friends must first show himself friendly. That's what attracts people. And we would be wise to build our lives in such a way that people would be drawn to us, not because of what we can offer financially or what have you into their lives, but because we're sincere, honest people of integrity that show that concern for those that we come in contact with. That's Solomon's exhortation. Be that sort of person. Verse 23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. The fear of the Lord. Twelfth time in the book of Proverbs that Solomon makes mention of the fear of the Lord. I'll remind you of a few of those instances. We learned back in chapter 1, right in the beginning of the book, that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Solomon told us. We learned that the fear of the Lord will prolong life, chapter 10 told us. We learned that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life in chapter 14. Now we discover that that healthy reverential respect for who God is and how we measure up to his greatness is not only the source of life, as it said back in chapter 10, but it's also the end thereof of life. So notice what Solomon says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. So the fear of the Lord is not only the beginning of wisdom, but it's also the source of all true and lasting satisfaction. And again, I think I referred to this phrase in the past. It's the sweet spot of life. That's what we were created for, to know and enjoy, to be in right relationship with God. And when we are in right relationship with God, regardless of everything that's going on around us, we have entered into the sweet spot of life. And so that's the place of satisfaction. There, we rest in the enjoyment of all that God is. Think of some of the characteristics of God, that he is all-powerful. We rest in that. God, you're in control, and I can entrust myself to you. That he is all-knowing, that he is ever-present, always with us, that he is wise, that he's fully loving, that he's fully merciful, that he abounds in grace and truth. Even when we fall, that he cannot deny who he is and that he, we can come back to him and he will receive us. We have all of these ideas and more. And we begin to rest ourselves in the enjoyment of all that he is. That's when we are truly satisfied. And as the verse uh, implies here in this idea of resting satisfied, that's when we can lay our head down in peace, knowing that whatever may come our particular direction, that he is going to then use that for his good even those things which may seem to be evil to us, that he can use those things and cause them to turn out for good. That's the way that we find peace and satisfaction in this life. And I think everybody wants peace and satisfaction in this life. Everyone is looking for it in one way or another. Sadly, too many are looking in the wrong places. The scripture is very, very clear that those other things are fine. You can have those other things in right relationship with God and so on. But if you want to find peace and rest and to put your head down at night and be at peace in that rest, that comes from a right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And again, to quote the verse, the fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it, rest satisfied. You want that peace? Get yourself into into a right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And stay in that right relationship. Verse 24, it says, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. How lazy must a person be that he can't bring himself to take his hand from his dish and bring it up 
to his mouth. That's the scenario that Solomon paints there. It's a guy sitting at a table, unable to bring the spoon from the dish up to his mouth. And of course, it's a bit laughable. But notice, though, the consequences are quite serious. And so we look at that and we're like, oh, you're such a lazy bum or whatever. That food is the very means of sustenance for that person's life. And so whereas it might kind of be humorous and we would chuckle at it, if that guy remains in that condition, he will die of starvation. Now who thinks it's funny? You people out there that are laughing at the poor guy. I've been too lazy at times. My wife has to always ask me, did you stop for lunch today or whatever? I've been too lazy at times to get up off the couch or to stop what I'm doing to go and make dinner. If it's already made, you know, like I'll, I'll stop and I'll eat there, but I don't want to have to cook it and all that kind of stuff. And I'll actually go without a meal or a few meals if my wife is away um, until she comes back home again or whatever because I'm too lazy here. But I've never been so lazy where the food is in front of me. And I, and I honey, could you help, you know, put it in my mouth or whatever it may be. Murray, and, excuse me, Matthew Henry, Henry, he says this, this man would rather starve than stir. And the man's laziness is going to lead to his dis- destruction. And of course, you can apply this and you should apply this to your spiritual walk with the Lord. Because oftentimes that bowl of food, that dish is the word of God. And how often the word of God sits in our homes It sits in our bathrooms. It sits in our living room and down in the den, whatever it may be. How often the word of God sits there and we just can't bring ourselves to pick it up and to open it up. It's like bringing the spoon up to the mouth. And and I'm not trying to make people feel bad or whatever here. I don't want to guilt you into studying the word of God, but it is your sustenance. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You want to live in your walk with the Lord, then you got to take his word seriously. You got to take that time to pray. You got to take that time to gather with the saints. That's the way that you will continue to grow. Practically eating your food, spiritually your spiritual food. Amen. Let the Lord speak to you about that. Verse 25, it says, strike a scoffer and the simple will learn prudence, reprove a man of understanding, and he will gain knowledge. Now the scoffer, we've looked at him a number of times, as we see here, may not learn from the rebuke, from the beating or whatever. Strike a scoffer, he may not get anything from it. But what we see here, at least the simple person will see that rebuke and learn a lesson from it. So the scoffer may not learn, but at least some impressionable onlookers might take notice of it. So think, for instance, when you're driving down the road and you see a car pulled over by a cop, naturally, you slow down. You check your thing there. You make sure, oh boy, I hope I don't get pulled over there. If you do, that's good, in, in a sense. At the very least, you're a simple person. You didn't realize the speed limit. You didn't realize how fast you were going. But you see another person getting caught, and you learn a lesson from them. So at the very least, that is good. It becomes a deterrent on poor behavior. Sadly, the scoffer is going to continue in their poor behavior, their foolishness. But at least the simple person will benefit from the valuable lesson. But that's not the ideal. The ideal is the converse of the scoffer, which isn't the simple person. The ideal is, or the, the uh, converse is the man of understanding. And so again, if you read it, strike a scoffer and the simple will learn prudence. Reprove a man of understanding 
and he will gain knowledge. That's the opposite of the scoffer. And the man of understanding, it does not need to be struck in order to be corrected. Like first you say, hey, don't do that. And then you say, look, I told you don't do that. I said don't do that. Then you begin the spankings, if you will. Well, here, the man of understanding doesn't need to go down that particular path. Just a simple word of reproof accomplishes the objective. You can beat the one, and they're still not going to get anything out of it. But the man of understanding, all you need is a simple word of correction. And the reason is this, because the man of understanding is the wise individual. And as we've been saying, the wise individual realizes they need to continually be learning, correct? They've never gotten to the point where I have everything I need, everybody else back off, I'm not interested in what you have to say. So they continually are learning, they're continually growing. In their pride, they haven't entrenched themselves into, I have everything I need, don't bother me. But they keep learning, and they keep growing. And so when the, re- the correction comes, they're willing to receive that particular correction. The wise person doesn't shun reproof because they would rather grow in truth than stand secure in their supposed dignity or their pride. And that's what we need to guard against, particularly as we grow in the Lord and we've been in the Lord a long number of years and things like that. We have to guard ourselves against pride and being entrenched. I know everything that I need to know. No, you don't. Keep on growing. That's what the wise person is doing. And for a wise person, a simple word of rebuke is enough to make him or her correct their error and cause them to grow wiser in the process. There's the old expression, a word to the wise. You've heard it. Well, a word to the wise. That's all it takes for a wise individual is a word of correction. And and may each of us be that kind of person. Verse 26 continues. It says, he who does violence to his father and chases away his mother, is a son who brings shame and reproach. Now again, this is a situation where a variety of different translations says slightly different things here. The key verse there, key couple of words there in that verse, is where in the ESV it says, does violence. Other versions use words like destroys, devastates, ruins, commits violence. And in each of those instances, regardless of the word that it's used, really the point's the same. That here's a person, small thanks for all the person's parents have done for them that they would turn around and cause shame to them and even commit violence against them. That's really the point. I think the clarity of the New Living Translation, best commentary, commentary on this verse, just says this. This is what the New Living Translation says. Children who mistreat their father or chase away their mother are an embarrassment and a public disgrace. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? So, young people, don't do that. All right, there you go. But even older people, and you have, you know, your parents a little bit older, and you still want to honor them and love them and respect them through the process here. All right, it should go without saying we want to be that type of person. Verse 27, cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Now, this is one of those verses where there's a variety, a wide variety between the various translations. I'm going to draw your attention to many of them. King James Version says it this way. Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge. Now, the idea then would be this. If there is something that is leading you astray, stop listening to it. Stop watching it. Stop reading that material. Because it's the fool that supposes they can continually consume that stuff 
That stuff that causes them to err from wisdom, as the verse says, and not be impacted by it. And so if there's material out there that is causing you to err from wisdom, the wise individual ceases to listen to that sort of teaching. Or at the very least, counters that sort of teaching by doubling up on truth. And so I remember Hank Hanegraaff, who uh, used to be referred to as the Bible Answer Man. He had a call-in show, and you can call and ask him your Bible questions. Hank did. And Hank did a lot of research and study into the cults. Because a lot of time people, hey, I'm talking to this friend that's a Mormon, or hey, I am, you know, I grew up in a Mormon church or whatever. And so he would do a lot of research on the cults, the Mormons, the JWs, Church of God Worldwide, and so on and so forth. And he would read the Book of Mormon, and he would read the New World Translation. And what he said to himself is, as I'm reading those things, those ideas begin to seep into your thinking. And so he created for himself, if I read an hour, of research into the Book of Mormon, then I'm going to read two hours of the Bible immediately following it to counter that false teaching. So there are instances where you can't get away from false teaching. Maybe you're like a Hank Hanegraaff and you have a call-in show and you've got to prepare yourself, or you just go to work every day and you hear the messages that are there, or you live in this world which we live in. There are times where you can't get away from it. In those instances here, there, make sure you double up on truth. And make sure you counter those false messages that you're hearing. But if the King James is the correct understanding of the verse, the idea then is this. If there's something leading you astray, causing you to err um, from walking in wisdom, then put that out of your life. Okay, that's the King James. Now, the Revised Standard Version, another good Bible translation, it renders this verse a little bit differently and differently enough that the general point changes. So this is what the RSV says. It says, Cease straying, my child, from the words of knowledge in order that you may hear instruction. So the point there, you could see how the King James could go the direction it did, but the point in this particular translation is it's addressing and rebuking the person that hears the words of instruction but strays from the words of instruction. And again, as we said in previous study, the words enter into their ears, but they never make their way down into the person's heart. And so if this understanding is correct, then what Solomon's exhortation is this, is that the only way these words will be of any benefit to us is if we listen to them and walk in them. So it doesn't do us any good just to hear these words. It doesn't do us any good to say, I've read through the Proverbs. I read one proverb a day. And I've done that for 15 years of my life. And boy, I know all the Proverbs. I can quote the Proverbs. I have a ribbon about the Proverbs. Are you walking in the wisdom of the Proverbs? It doesn't matter if you know these things. It matters if you walk in them. And I'll be honest with you. I think the Scripture makes it clear. It's better not to know these things than to know them and fail to do them, believe it or not. And James, he touches on this idea, and maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but I don't think too much of a stretch. James there, he, he speaks to teachers, and he says to them, not many of you should become teachers. He speaks to the people of the church desiring to, to be the teachers or what have you. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You sure you want that? He writes it. Because I think he's saying, look, knowing, and presumably he would know best but the person teaching, knowing opens a person up to be judged with a strict, greater strictness. 
And so he points that out to him there. And that's what really, if the RSV is correct, that's what Solomon is getting at. Don't just learn these things. Live these things. Put them into practice. Now, the ESV, the version I'm reading from, many of us have here this morning, this says, cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. So again, all in the same ballpark, but enough tweaking in the way it's written to communicate a slightly different idea. The idea here then would be don't stop learning and applying these words of wisdom. All right, that would be the idea here. And I think a helpful picture for us is the picture of a person walking the wrong way on a moving sidewalk or on an escalator. And if you go and you're a troubled kid or whatever and you go to JCPenney and you slide down the middle part and then you walk up the wrong side there and they chase you out. We used to do that when I was young. Not much to do in Ewing, but that's what we did up at the mall there. But if you, go, if you walk the wrong direction, up the down, for instance, you can gain ground if you walk fast enough and you keep moving and you keep taking those steps and a couple steps at a time. But the moment you stop, you quickly lose ground in those particular instances. And that's what I would suggest. If the ESV is correct, that's what Solomon is getting at. Don't stop learning and don't stop applying, thinking that you have suddenly arrived. And so what do we do? We stop sitting under the word of God. And what happens? We begin to lose ground in our walk with the Lord. We stop praying and we stop gathering together with others to pray. What happens? We begin to lose ground in our walk with the Lord. We stop allowing the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives, to bring conviction in our lives and to respond to that conviction. And what happens? I just told you, we begin to lose ground. It's the escalator thing. We begin to slide back. And so whether it's being careful about whose instruction you give yourself to, or that you take special care to keep receiving instruction, or that you're diligent not to just hear the instruction, but to walk in that destruction, instruction. The point is the same in each instance. The wise person knows to go and to keep going to the place of truth and to build their life upon that truth. And of course, that's the word of God. And that would be Solomon's exhortation, whichever translation that we have. Verse 28, I need a drink. It says, a worthless witness mocks at justice and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. Now, two different verses from last week, verse 5 and verse 9, address the idea of a false witness. So I'm not going to go that in depth to it. You can reference those particular comments uh, on the app and so on. But again, in short, the Lord cares about justice. He cares about truthfulness. And it's the fool that cast off his repeated admonitions about being a truthful witness. The false witness mocks at justice and creates an environment or a society that actively works against justice. And that's not for your good. And so you're hurting yourself in your false witness. Verse 29, our final verse today, it says, Condemnation is ready for scoffers and beating for the backs of fools. So where the scoffer, as we said, may scorn judgment, the scoffer will never be able to ultimately escape judgment. And the inevitable will take place. Often in this world, the inevitable takes place, but definitely in the next. And it is so much better to willingly bow bow the knee now than to forcefully have to bow the knee then. And so, look, if you don't know Jesus, judgment is coming. And you've been here, it's a nice place, they serve, you know, some food afterwards, or the people are polite out front, or whatever it may be, but you don't know the Lord Jesus, there is a judgment that will come on every one of us. 
And the scripture makes it very clear that all will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And you could either do that willingly now and experience his love poured into your heart and the washing and the cleansing for your sin, or you can experience that submission to him then, absent of his love, and instead the judgment and the consequences for your sin. It's so much better to bow the knee now. And if you don't know Christ, if you would come up afterwards, I'd love to talk with you and help you begin a relationship with the Lord. We all need to. Many of us already have. Today could be your day that you do. Amen, good friends. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we pray for that person now that has been sitting here and listening and, and realizing, I don't have a relationship with the Lord. I come, I sit here, I listen, but my heart hasn't been given over to him. I haven't been cleansed of my sin, and I still sit in judgment before a holy God. I pray for that person, Lord, that by your spirit you would draw them even right now, and you would impress upon their heart the truth of the statement that your sins can be forgiven. Jesus went to a cross to die for you. He's willing to cleanse you and wash you. You just need to bow your knee and take him as not only your Savior, but as your Lord, and he'll welcome you. And Father, I pray for that person now or those people that their heart would be moved to respond to those truths. Father, I pray for all of us here. Lord, all of us that have previously begun a relationship with you, Lord, I pray that we would continue to walk with you that our eyes would be firmly fixed upon you as we go, that we would run hard after you, Lord, that you would enlarge our hearts for the things of God and you would shrink in our hearts, so to speak, for those things that are for self or of this world and that we would put anything that hinders us from running our race, we would cut those things off, put them aside, and we'd run our race with endurance with our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we believe that in doing that, we've entered into the sweet spot of life. The place that you created us for is to know you and to walk in your ways. And so, Lord, prompt our hearts toward those truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.